Well, last Sunday afternoon, Living Stone, our sister church in Oshkosh, met for the first time back in their building. And if you've ever been to their building in Oshkosh, you realize that uh, their church building is actually right across from the Oshkosh Police Department. They were doing their service on a Sunday afternoon, and just before the service and during the service, a few hundred protesters walked in front of the church building right on the street. And they actually did two laps around the block, two laps um, in front of the church as the church doors were open. Uh, Josh was welcoming others into the church and welcoming anyone into the church. Um, I'm talking to Josh about this. He said he got a few ways, but mostly he got a lot of stares. And Josh communicated to me, he felt this sense of disconnect. A disconnect between a God that some of these people might believe in and what they might view as his power to actually fix the racial divide. The idea that God is not the one that can fix this problem. A divide between the church and the Lord and what they were doing. It's a good question that we're asking during this time. Where is the God who parted the Red Sea? Who made the sun stay in the sky? Who brought fire upon the altar at Mount Carmel? Who rose a man from the dead? Where is this God? When people are losing their jobs, people are getting sick, people are dying. As George Floyd was murdered, as cities burn, where is the God of all the Bible stories that we know? I wonder if we've forgotten about this story in the Bible. If we've forgotten to remember the story of Esther. A story that tells us of a world controlled by an empire that seems so far removed from God and his people. The people of God that are in a place that they feel so helpless that it would make our current situation seem minuscule. A people that wondered, where is God? Here's the thing. This new book that we are going to study, that Esther is going to teach us, and we're going to see in the first chapter this morning, is going to teach us this. As invincible as the forces seem around us, they are all still under the providence of God. As invincible as all these things that we're seeing around us in this time, they are still under the providence of God. Let's look together, shall we? We're going to look at just the first nine verses at first, then I'll read the latter part a little bit later. And uh, let's look at Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Now in the days of Ashuarius... The Ashuaries who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ashuarius sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. 
while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of uh, uh, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Asherarius. The word of the Lord. Well, if you're just joining us in our church, you might realize that we go through the Bible here at Emmaus Road. And uh, through our years, our seven plus years of Emmaus Road, we've gone through 28 books of the Bible. This would make number 29. Of course, there are 66 books of the Bible, and not all are the same. They actually have different genres. There's wisdom, there's historical narrative, there's prophetic literature, there's the Gospels, there's apocalyptic literature, there's letters. There's all these different types of genres in the Bible. In the fall, we rotate between prophetic literature and historical narrative, the Old Testament. In the spring, we rotate between letters, the epistles, and the gospels. And in the summer, we go through wisdom literature. And we've gone through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and Song of Songs. And even apocalyptic literature, we went through the book of Revelation. So we're out of the wisdom literature. What do we do next? We thought it would be good to maybe go through a book that sometimes gets left out, the book of Esther, an historical narrative. Now, as we change gears from the epistles, Corinthians that we just covered, to historical narrative, we need to see the differences in how we look and read these books. A letter that we just went through has tight logical arguments, a lot of theological premises, like the nature of the Trinity, the nature of God is laid out to us deductively. A letter, an epistle is like taking a geometry class. There's proofs and there's all this stuff that we go, here is what the principle is. Now we've moved from geometry to a class on Shakespeare. No longer are there proofs about God. Instead, we see the character of God not deductively, but through story, through characters and plot and tension and conflict, affections, hatred, love. This simply isn't just a story, but it's set in real time in history. In this case, the Persian Empire over a 10-year span from 483 to 473 BC. Now there's also a uniqueness about this specific historical narrative, this story, the story of Esther. What makes Esther unique versus other historical narratives, other than 
most people who think of Esther usually think of a singing green onion played uh, in Veggie Tales. I realizing that's what most people think about when they think about Esther nowadays. Now you might not know this, but Esther never uses the name of God. In fact, the first chapter doesn't even mention the people of God at all. It's a whole different people, a whole different nation. Some people through history have said, throw it out. What is it doing in the canon? What is it doing in the Bible if it doesn't even mention God in it? I think it's foolish to do this. In fact, this is a story device used by the author to make this book so beautiful and relevant to us that God's name is not mentioned in it. See, the point of not using God's name in this story is to show even when God seems far off, literally not mentioned in this story, God is working providentially for his people. This book is dark with suspense violence, possible genocide, hatred, sexual oppression. As we go through it, makes us question, God, where are you? And as we go through this story, and I encourage you, this is an, a great story to read around the dinner table with your family, maybe just chapter by chapter, week by week, and that's what we're going to be doing, chapter by chapter for 10 weeks. As the story unfolds, you will see the powerful providence of God. Not by any huge miraculous things like the sun standing still in the sky, but instead, God is powerfully working through ordinary means to do a mighty thing with his people. Well, let's look in verse 1 through 9, shall we? We see in these verses the over, overwhelming control of the Persian Empire. It puts us in the heart of the Persian Empire in modern day Western Iran, Susa. Far from Israel and the people of God. There's no mention of temple or Jerusalem or a Jewish king. Instead, we get a, me a message of this King Ashuarius, this powerful king of Persia. And where are the covenant people? Where are the Hebrews? Where are the Israelites? Well, they're in bondage. Some have left before this to go back to Jerusalem, but still some, they're mentioned here in the book of Esther, are still in the Persian Empire. And we see how great this empire is. 127 provinces that spans from Greece to India the known world at that time. King Ashuarius, which is the Hebrew name of this king. Xerxes is his Persian name. And again, maybe some people's understanding of Esther comes from movies. You might have seen the movie 300, and you saw this king, or God king, as it was mentioned in the movie 300, Xerxes. And it depicts the battle that actually happened in 480 B.C., and some argue that this feast that is mentioned here in 483, that the battle happened in 480, that the 
feast given there is actually a gathering of the nobles of Xerxes to try to get them on his side to go and battle against Greece. And you see this great feast, and it shows the power of this king in control of this empire. It's like the World Fair, right? That's happened in history through the United States and Great Britain. These great nations that gather everyone together, say, look at our power. Look how great we are. Sometimes it lasts a whole summer. Here, this one lasts 180 days. For all to see the power of the Persian Empire. In the last seven days... There's a feast for the officers in the citadel. We could think of modern-day Buckingham Palace or the Vatican or a presidential compound that these people come into the citadel for seven days, these officials, these nobles, to feast in the greatness of, Xerx- of Xerxes, the greatness of this empire. So move over Kardashian wedding. This is even crazier than that. Gold couches, Pavements that are made out of mosaics, golden goblets. This is insane. How much power and control this nation, this empire has. How much power does Xerxes have? So powerful that he can make laws that says, tell the people to drink what they want on this feast. He even controls their freedom to drink how much they want to. I think the author is showing that is how great he is, that he can control people and what they can drink in their supposed freedom. Well, don't we want to get to this place, right? This should be the end of the story, not the beginning. This is the great feast. They've arrived. Xerxes in Persia has arrived at where they should be. This should not be at the beginning. It should be at the end. That's where a story should happen. Look at the greatness. They've arrived. There's a feast. It's awesome. This is where we want to be, right? This is why we watch MTV Cribs. We want to have that kind of house. That's why we watch HGTV. We want to have the ability to sit on the couch and have remote control blinds. That we don't have to take orders from anyone else. That when... Guests come over, our grandkids over, they can eat what they want because we have such wealth. How frustrating it might have been for many of us over the past few months. We can't go to restaurants we want. We can't meet with who we want to. We want to be like Xerxes. We want to make our own choices. We want to be able to have the man cave like Xerxes has, where the women are somewhere else and he is with his men officials drinking to his heart content. But here's the thing. What a great story device to put this feast and this banquet at the beginning is to make people see this is not the true kingdom. This is not a rival. There is still a story to come. The book is showing that even when Persia has arrived, is in control, God is still working to do something different. Some of us, in this time, in this world right now, are sitting like Xerxes, sitting pretty, 
We've arrived. We have the remote control blind. We've retired. We can eat what we want. We can do what we want. These last few months have made some of us very uncomfortable. Have gotten us out of that idea that we have arrived. And that might be a picture of God working to shake us as he is going to shake this empire. Some of us might be on the other end. (coughs) We might think debts own us. Our employer controls us. Our health concerns drive us where we do not want to go. And we read about the greatness of the empire, the greatness of things around us, but we look at ourselves and we go, where are you, God? It's like we are in a foreign place like the Israelites. Now we're saying, we're in Persia and wondering all this greatness around us, but where is God for us? Esther is trying to talk to you too. Well, we've seen this opulence and this greatness and this lavishness and this control that Xerxes Ashuarius has. But let's see what happens to this supposed control. Let's look, shall we? We're going to go to verse 10 all the way to the end of the chapter. Man, this is what story gets good. Here we go. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehemen, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ashuarius, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memekan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ashuarius, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memekan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ashuarius. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ashuarius commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ashuarius, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Well, here's the king with all his men, and they've been drinking for seven days, and he's like, guess what? I want to see my woman. Not in the greatest way. Some would argue that the very way that it's worded is he wants to see just her with her crown on her head, and that's it. And we see this is a very humorous section. Here is a king with so much power and so much control, but he can't get his wife, his queen, to come to the party. He thought he was powerful, but he can't even get his wife to answer his commands. See, a king is supposed to be wise, and we see this king should make a decision on spot, but he's got to have all these advisors advise him and what he's supposed to do, all these people around him to advise him what to do. And the solution that they give that he abides by is even more humorous. He's taken a local problem, a problem that's just in the citadel, a problem that probably could have been dealt with internally, and he's decided, let's broadcast it throughout the whole kingdom of what's happened. You know, this was just a Xerxes and Vashti problem. And now he takes the advice of Memucan to say, let's make this, this is a kingdom problem. So, oh no, we'll do, we'll pass a law that Vashti can't come before the king again. And that will cause all the women to then listen to their husbands. How this vast kingdom of 167 provinces from Greece all the way to India can enforce such a thing in everyone's household is beside me. That's how it works in your household, right? That's how it works in mine, right? I've got this sign in my house that says, man of the house. And then there's all these things underneath the sign, all the laws that these five ladies in my house are supposed to abide by. And they are supposed to call me king. King Daniel, listen to me. And because I have this on the wall and all these laws written down, and because they call me king, guess what? They, they listen to everything I say. They abide by me. Of course not. That's silly. That's not the way that control works. That's just the way change works. It's humorous that they've gone from one section, verses 1 through 9, all the power and control and mightiness of King Asherarius to see how much he is not in control, no matter what edicts and what laws he puts in place. It's amazing to me how we still think this is the way it works in the world. You probably have seen, no matter how successful someone might be, no matter how much wealth they have, no matter how much power they have, it's not a guarantee that their marriage will go well. That there will actually be love between husband and wife. It doesn't matter how much money and power that you have, that you send your kids to the right education, the right programs, the right camps, the right 
whatever it might be, even the right church, hire the right youth pastor, no matter what things you put in place, that is not a guarantee that they will turn out the way that you want them to or they should be under the Lord. No matter how much you hashtag or put stuff on social media, it will not turn the hearts of people that are racist in our nation. See, there is a greater hand at work that directs and changes people. All these illusions of control are just that, a mirage. God and his providence is the one that directs all things. And it's when we rely upon him and we trust in him, our marriages, our children, and what is going on on in our nation can truly change in his providence. We think this principle, can it have a great bearing on what we are seeing in our nation right now? As invincible as the forces seem around us, are they still under the providence of God? Growing up, I felt a lot of invisible forces, invincible, sorry, invincible forces around me in what I would call secular liberal America. I went to school in a public school in Madison. I went to a liberal arts college on the East Coast. I was bombarded constantly by societal messages. Words that might be new to your vocabulary in the next last few weeks, I've been hearing since I was age six. Systematic racism, white privilege, those things I have been taught since I was very, very young. Discussions about racial relations were put into political categories, liberal and conservatives. And these were categories I worked in. And I was easy when I heard these buzzwords and all those things, I just could put people in boxes. It's liberal, that's conservative. And that's how I look through the lens of racial relations. Fast forward to my 30s. God directs me to this historic Southern denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, that has been really wrestling with these issues of racial reconciliation over the past years. And for me, a Yankee, a Northerner, I say, hey, you deal with your Confederate junk, your Southern baggage. I'm over here. We're fine. But here's the thing. Now I have these colleagues, right? This is the way Presbyterianism works, that I have to relate to other pastors a lot. I have these fellow pastors that are African-American, both in the North and the South, And they communicate to me the real problems that they are facing with the police in society. But I'm good, right? I'm ready for their their talking, their points, because I've heard it all before. 
liberal rhetoric. And this is what became crazy to me. That these African-American brothers that I serve alongside with were more conservative than I was on some theological issues. They were more conservative than I was. And here, they're talking to me about their pain and what they are going through of being a black person in America. And I hear their stories and their pain and the injustice that they're talking about. And they communicate, they feel like living in America is like living sometimes in Persia an institution and a control and power. And they say, where is God in our communities? What is he doing? But here I am, these brothers that are serving alongside me preaching the gospel, and I label them and I discredit them quickly. But if I put myself in their shoes and I heard their cries Their cries of God, help us. Help us in what we feel is a crushing environment. Listen, I, I'm not saying I have the answers. I'm not saying I have the right approach. I'm not telling you what to do. I just want us to get a glimpse of what their experience is and how they feel living in the United States. Their cries are, are you there, Lord, in this? This environment is too great. Think about it. Think about how the image of a police officer bent on his knee on an African-American's neck for nine minutes until he dies was a symbol for these people of an empire crushing them, of a power that they cannot overcome. You see, it makes sense that out of this narrative that they've experienced this last two weeks, out of this death, out of this weakness, has come a groundswell over this nation. That change might happen in these communities. Fast forward 500 years from the Persian Empire, 500 years later, to a new empire that has gained control over the world, even greater than the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire. What was their symbol of dominance? that they were in control? Two beams put together where they hung their enemies. Imagine the crying out of Israel of the oppression they felt by the Roman Empire. And think about the image that seared in their mind when their king was put upon this device of torture and murder. The cross. And how much they might have said, God, where are you? 
Where are you with this Roman control? But wait. In that supposed control of the Roman Empire, God was working providentially. In weakness, in what we'll see in Esther, God was working to perform his justice, to usher in his kingdom in the world. Emmaus Road. In these past few months, might this loss of control that we feel, could it be God guiding us in his providence to move our hearts? Let Esther inform us. Let it teach us. Let us show that God is working even when we feel we don't see him. Let's pray.